First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 19. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right, we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on the text in front of us. You want to turn this mic on? Or am, am I on, George? Okay. Uh, yeah, we're going to spend some time reflecting on the text that's in front of us here from 1 Peter 4. Well, you notice the text opens with kind of a stunning proclamation. The end of all things is at hand. The end of the world. Uh, it probably conjures up all kinds of images. If you're from a slightly older generation, you might imagine people holding up signs, ringing bells on street corners. Younger folks, maybe you think of apocalyptic movies or post-apocalyptic novels published by the dozens in recent years. Or maybe it's not an image at all, but the R.E.M. song. You know, whether the end of the world comes via robots or zombies or robot zombies or climate catastrophe or meteor strike or a sharknado or by some other means, like we're kind of obsessed about it as a species. And the Christian faith has always had an eye on the end of the world. And the theological word we use for this is eschatology. And all that means, you don't need to be intimidated by it, all it means is it's the study or the doctrine of end things, of last things. And Old Testament believers, they definitely thought about this and talked about it. And as we get into the New Testament, particularly in the letters, the final visions of John in Revelation, we see a faith that's lived in the present but has an eye towards the future. Now, the Bible has things to say about how the world ends. But in 1 Peter 4, the main thing Peter's concerned with is not details of how it ends, but what a knowledge of the end should lead us to do. What he's asking is, how does the end change the present? That's his concern. So I have two points, two headings to kind of guide us through this text. First, I want to talk about godly living at the end of the world and then suffering at the end of the world. So the end of all things is at hand. Well, that immediately raises a question, doesn't it? 
If Peter wrote this letter in the mid-first century, 50s, 60s, something like that, how could it have been the end of all things? Like, we're, we're still here. There are still things. You know, we're still here 2,000 years or so later. Well, the solution is Peter's using that word uh, not in the same way that we are. We moderns, we tend to think of the end as finish line or as completion of a project. But the Greek word tell us that we normally translate as end, it just more refers to the last stage of a process, the final act of a play, something like that. So if we translate this into the vernacular, what Peter's saying is the beginning of the end is at hand. And spiritually speaking, what we mean is there are no major acts left in the play. Jesus came, he was the pinnacle of human history, he lived, he died, he was raised, he ascended to the Father, and now we sort of live in the final act. It's the age of the church, where God's people have spread out over continents and centuries, we walk with the Spirit, and we wait for the end of the end. We are in the end, but we're waiting for the end of the end, because there are no more major changes to come, no more prophets, we're, we're in the final act. When Peter wrote, it was the beginning of the end. Perhaps now we're in the middle of the end. Maybe we're, in, we're very close to the end of the end. It really isn't for us to mess around with dates and times. God, in fact, tells us, well, I've concealed those things from you on purpose. No, no one knows, and the one who knows is going to be wrong about what he thinks he knows. But getting back to our passage, Peter just simply states, the end of all things is starting, and therefore we have some things to do. For Peter, the point of eschatology, the point of the doctrine of last things, is so that you might live a godly life. You know, as a fan of post-apocalyptic fiction shows, movies, I find it nearly interesting, or I find it interesting, nearly all of them depict the end of days as causing a breakdown in morality. You know, if you've ever seen or, or read The Road by Cormac McCarthy, it's one of my favorite books, also kind of disturbing at some points. But anyways, the few humans who remain, they encounter all kinds of unspeakable evil and devastation. The end of all things in The Road led to a dramatic increase in evil. And the same is true in most ones. Mad Max, Book of Eli, like whatever you want to kind of cite as your end of all things, usually it's accompanied by a breakdown in morality. But as the end of all things begins to happen around Christians, Peter tells them, no, no, you should live godly lives. Not just that, but what Peter commands, it's kind of mundane. It's even a little bit boring. We might have expected, man, it's the end of all things. Let's do something extraordinary. And Peter's like, nah, like just, just get on with the normal activities of the people of God. This is his tone. But what exactly does it mean to live a godly life? What does godly living look like at the end of the world? He gives four commands. We're going to walk through them. First, a godly life is marked by clear thinking. If you look at verse 7, he tells them, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because he already said something very similar to this in chapter 1, verse 13. Again, he called them there to sober-mindedness. But here it's just a little bit different. Sober-mindedness, though, is about clear thinking. It's about not dousing yourself with alcohol or drugs or anything that, that numbs your thinking, that, 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 blunts, or that, that numbs you out or blunts your thinking. So Peter's telling them, as the end of the world happens around you, lots of people are going to lose their heads. Some will descend into a kind of fatalism, they'll just give up. Others will lose their heads and do something very out of character. Others will do very risky things, things they never would have done in many varied and different ways. They won't be thinking rightly. And in contrast, Peter urges the Christians, should not be so with you. It should not be so with you. And then he tacks on this phrase, for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. Uh, when can one pray? 
Well, it usually takes a few things. It takes a focus of mind. You've got to be focused on that task. And usually it takes a brief or extended pause in activity. And so if at the end of the world, you're running around frantically, you're not stopping, you're not pausing, uh, you're not going to be able to pray. If you're taking uh, crazy risks or doing things out of character, that's going to mess up your prayers. And in contrast, Peter is just telling the Christians, keep your heads on, be calm, have sober minds so you can call it to God. The end of all things, when it comes, when it happens, it should find Christians praying, being clear-minded. Secondly, a godly life is marked by persistence in love. Look at verse 8. He says, above all, love one another earnestly. You know, one of Jesus' last sort of major teachings was on the end times, and he talked a lot about how the end was going to come, and he talks about tribulation and trouble and earthquakes and persecution. But in Matthew 24, verse 12, he makes sort of this interesting comment. He says, and the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. And I think we take, we normally commentators, scholars take Jesus to mean that when things get tough at the end of the world, some people will lose their love for God. Their love for God is going to grow cold. But additionally, when resources get short, things get difficult, we're also tempted to be selfish and suspicious. We get quick to distrust, quick to close our hearts to others, and our love for other people also grows cold. So what, I think what Peter's doing is he's taking what Jesus told us will happen, and he's giving us a command to prevent the seemingly inevitable. Instead of love growing cold, he wants us to stoke the fire of our love, to be constantly loving each other. And this is not romantic love. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that kind of divine friendship love, a fellowship love, the love shared between Christians. When the end of the world is coming, he says, go out of your way to keep on loving each other. And then he offers a reason. He says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, that's an interesting phrase. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that loving other people can, can atone or, or forgive their sins? Well, that doesn't seem to square with what other parts of the scriptures teach about forgiveness. Well, does he simply mean that, that by loving we should excuse sin or ignore sin? I think many of us have heard or seen or been part of churches that, that cover up the sins of church members or of pastors instead of dealing with them. That doesn't seem right. The Bible never tells us to, to pretend sin doesn't exist or to try to cover it up. So if this verse isn't about forgiveness and it's not about ignoring or excusing sin, what could Peter mean well, I think Peter means that earnest, constant love means not responding in kind when we are sinned against, and when we do so, we sort of cover sin we, because we disrupt the cycle of sin that it causes. Let me give you an example. When we're sinned against, we usually want to, or our impulse at least, is to return the sin in kind, having a sort of eye for an eye approach. See this in children sometimes. Why did you hit him? Because he hit me first. The natural instinct, I want to, I, I was, evil was done to me. I want to return the same kind of evil. And then we also see it in adults, don't we? Why did you speak with such hostility towards her? Well, that's how she spoke to me. Why did you feel justified to spread half-truths about them? Well, because they did it first to me. See, Peter doesn't want that in the church. If we are sinned against, he wants us to respond in love, which means to refuse to sin back against others when we are sinned against, to stop cycles of hatred and distrust and jealousy. When we love well, this is what he's saying, when we love well, it will cover over and stop the spread of multitudes of sins. So, so far we've got clear-mindedness for praying, love that covers sins, and third, we should be hospitable without complaint. 
Well, being hospitable, hospitality, it's the using of one's wealth, one's assets to meet the needs of another. It particularly describes hosting in your home or apartment, like whatever kind of RV, whatever, whatever you live in, for, for meals or for lodging. And originally the word was sort of kind of uniquely meant to the hosting of strangers. It literally means love for strangers or traveling, or traveling Christians, but it came to mean a more general kind of hosting. And on one hand, you're like, well, everyone loves to eat. I love, people love having people over, uh, commanding hospitality. Why is this such a big deal? But think about it in context with the previous command. Who do we need to be told to love that we might cover over their sins? Well, presumably, it would be those who are difficult to love or those who have sinned against us and wounded us. We need to be instructed to love those whom we don't naturally feel loving toward. So think about it. Who do we need to be told to be hospitable towards? Presumably, it would not be those that we find easy to host or easy to love. It would rather be those we are not naturally inclined to host. Now, who comes to mind? <laughs> Make the list in your head. Does it include your family? Yeah, maybe. Does it include your friends, neighbors? What about those you find annoying? What about those who are needy? What about those who are, are wealthier than you or poorer than you? What about those with whom you disagree? What about those whom you believe are actively damaging the church or the neighborhood or the city or the country? See, Peter understands something. He understands at the end of the world, we're going to be tempted to close ranks, have a tight inner circle. Let's raise some, let's raise some strong walls. And he says, no, 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 no. Invite others in. Be a willing host and a thankful guest. And in fact, if you want to do a little thought experiment, ask yourself this question. Who's the least likely person that I actually know? So you can't choose someone, you know, Putin or whatever. Maybe you don't actually know him. Who's the least likely person you actually know that you would have over for coffee or dinner? So you can think about it. And then what if you invited them? That's the kind of radical hospitality I think Peter has in mind. You want to hang out with your friends and people who like the same things as you? Great. Feel free to do that. Do that all you want. Also, hang out with your not friends. Hang out with those who are not as easy to love. Okay, fourth. Fourth godly living looks like humble usage of your gifts. Look at verse 10. Peter reminds them, Everyone in the church, every person has received a gift, and what you do with your gift is you find a spot for it. And before we kind of get into a brief discussion of the kind of gifts that Peter lists, just pause for a moment to realize if you belong to Jesus, you have something to offer the church, something to offer our church if you're, if you're not a visitor or if you belong here. Uh, we need you here. We need what you bring here. Now, you may not know what you bring. You may not know the kind of things God has gifted you to do. That's all right. The best way to find out is just you know, start trying stuff and see how it goes. Maybe you'll love to host people at your house. Maybe you'll love to teach children. Maybe you'll, you'll be content doing odd jobs for people who, can't, who can't know, don't know how to do those things. I think we often get hung up on defining gifts or I need to find a category where this gift fits. Peter doesn't seem so concerned about that. If you look carefully, end of verse 10, he calls Christians stewards of God's varied grace. In other words, he says, the grace that makes you, you, will vary widely. It'll be as wide and as different and as diverse as God's grace is. So let's do sort of a weird example. Are you ready? Is a love for ice fishing 
a spiritual gift? You're like, that's a silly question. But stay with it for a second. Could a love for ice fishing be a spiritual gift? Well, you could potentially use that interest to disciple people, to share Christ with people, to help others just enjoy God's created world. Now you're like, well, where does ice fishing in the, fit in the list of spiritual gifts? I don't know. But does, uh, could ice fishing be an example of the varied grace that God dispenses for the good of his church? Sure, I think it could be. It all depends on, on how it's used. See, I don't want you to get hung up on a few spiritual-sounding categories. And first of all, this is another nit to pick here, but music leading, it's a great gift. We're very thankful for all our musicians here. It's never listed in any of the lists of gifts yet in church. We're like, well, that's a gift, but ice fishing can't be one. I'm just saying, let's not get too hung up at it. I'd rather you just look carefully at your life. What has God made you to do? What, what has God made you to love? And figure out, well, how can I use that in the church? And by the way, a meeting where you're trying to figure that out, where a few of us get together or a bunch of us get together, and trying to figure out, I have this weird, unique gift. I'm trying to find a spot for it in the church. That, that's a great meeting. I, I'd go to that meeting every day of the week. A person trying to figure out, how do I use a love for, for running or drums or, or coffee roasting or whatever your thing is, how can this be used in the kingdom of God? That sounds great. Now, to help us along, Peter tells us there are two main categories of gifts, two main ways of thinking about them. And he talks about gifts of speaking and gifts of serving, or gifts of speaking and gifts of, of, of action, acting. The speaking gifts... Of course, include things like teaching. Well, and Peter calls it speaking the oracles of God. Some people are gifted to preach and to teach and lead small groups and, and teach children, like in Sunday school. Some people speak to others you know, one-on-one -on -one over coffee or tea. They speak words of encouragement, words of consolation, words of support. As a, as a, in, in the church, as a pastor, this is, this is super important. Uh, gifts of words, gifts of speaking are, are what God gives to help keep his church sort of together. Some people are gifted at that. Other people would rather die than speak. You know, please don't make me talk. Please don't make me say anything. I'd rather serve. I'd rather find a practical need and meet it. Uh, can I cook something? Can I clean something? Can I, can I pick something up? And look, as a pastor, as a church, it's so encouraging when people gifted at serving just do things. You know, stuff is picked up, supplies are dropped off, young, young weary parents everywhere are being fed. And so look, if you are a speaking person, if you are a serving person, if you have a little bit of both, Peter says, just use what you have for the glory of God. The point of the gifts, it's not to make much of yourself, it's to make much of God. And again, kind of notice the orientation. At the end of the world... You're going to want to self-protect. You're going to want to hoard. You're going to want to hole up. And Peter says, give you away. Give yourself away in service. Now, is it the end of the world? I don't know. It's at least the middle of the end. And to be a Christian, Peter says, it, it, it should result in godly living. Now, where do we get the motivation to do that? We'll talk about that at the end. I first want to talk about part two, suffering at the end of the world. And if you've been around our church the last few weeks, you're like, suffering. This sounds familiar. Haven't we talked about this in uh, 1 Peter already? And the answer is yes. And you, then you say, well, didn't actually Frankie have most of a sermon about this very topic last week? The answer again is yes. And suffering has been discussed in 1 Peter over and over. Chapter 1, verse 6, in his introductory thoughts, he says something about it. Chapter 2, verse 19, in the middle of a discussion of servants and masters, uh, Peter, Peter talks about it. Last week, chapter 3, we've had three different discussions of suffering. 
and trials. Now here is the fourth, and, you know, next week, there'll be a brief fifth right at the end, right before he finishes up. He's like, I got one more thing to say about suffering. It's a major theme. It's a major theme. And so I kind of have two new wrinkles that we haven't kind of touched on so directly yet that I want to hit on today. Two new wrinkles about suffering. And the first is this. It shouldn't be surprising. It's right there in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Now, you only have to tell someone not to be surprised when you are worried. They will be surprised. And Peter seems to be worried. You know, th- th- something in the trials that's going to su- surprise these young believers. They're going to lose their heads. They're going to give up on godly living. He doesn't want that. Rather, he wants them to be ready. And he tells them, fiery trials are not an if but a when. They're not something strange but something expected. Now, how should we make sense of this in Canada, in the West? Should we too expect trials? Well, first of all, the word fiery, I think I need to clarify, it more has the sense of being purifying or testing, not the sense of literally being burned at the stake or, or whatever. Um, and so that's how he's using fiery there and more of that like, um, you know, like when they, do, when they smelt gold or whatever. But I think the answer to the question is, should we expect this in Canada, in the West? I think the answer is in general, yes, but in particular, no. And here's what I mean. God's people in general do suffer trials of their faith that, that purify their faith, that help them to grow, but they're not evenly distributed. We don't get 10% trials and 90% you know, normal times. Life's not evenly distributed. Really, some people get a lot more, some people get a lot less. The likelihood is at some point you will grow through a season of refinement, um, but maybe other times you'll have seasons of blessings. The, the point is not, oh, how much do we expect it or not? The point is, when it comes, you're ready for it. What Peter's trying to do is he's trying to adjust their expectations. You know when you go to theme park, uh, like Wonderland or whatever, and you ride roller coasters there? The reason that roller coasters are not traumatic is because, first of all, you believe they're safe, like you're not going to fall off or whatever, um, but also because you go on a roller coaster expecting something crazy to happen. You're like, when I sit in that seat and buckle the buckles or whatever, I'm going to be flipped upside down. I'm gonna, there's, there's going to be a loop or whatever. Things are going to happen, and you're prepared, at least when you're not you know, 40 or whatever, you're prepared mentally and physically for that occurrence. This is what Peter's saying. In the same way, the people of God... Like, you're buckling yourself in. You don't need to expect a smooth ride and then be astonished when trials happen. No, he's like, you go into life as a kind of theme park. There's going to be some crazy times. I'm going to be upside down at some point. Of course, there's going to be joy. There's going to be delight. There's going to be fun. But the expectations are set. It's not all going to be easy. It's not all going to be good. And in fact, more than a simple steely resolve, Peter says, you can rejoice in the trials. That's in verse 13. It says, when you suffer for Christ, you're sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. When you are persecuted as a Christian, there's a special kind of participation with Christ that those who are not persecuted will never know. You know, we sing a song here called, Who is Like the Lord Our God? It's largely based on Psalm 113. And in the last verse of that song, Wendell Kimbrew picks up on the languages of this passage. He, he, he writes, we sing, And sharing the sufferings of Jesus, you share in his glory and crown. That's what verse 13 is talking about. That Christians who suffer, they participate with Christ in his sufferings and will also participate in his glorious revealing. And suffering, again, we're talking about the end, it's explicitly tied to the second coming. The more you suffer, the more ready, the more eager, the more expectatious, sort of a made-up word, the more expectatious you will be of the returning of Christ. 
So the suffering is not expected. We should be ready for it, looking forward to how it will unite us with Christ. But second, Peter says just suffering needs to be carefully distinguished from unjust suffering. This is in verses 14 through 16. He's talking about the difference between suffering for the name of Christ, because you are a Christian, because you believe in Jesus, and suffering because you've done evil. So if a Christian suffers for Christ's sake, he's like, great, it's a glory, it's a blessing, it's a cause for rejoicing, which we've just discussed. But he says, but if a Christian suffers because they were a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler, that's not worthy of praise, and it's not a reason to rejoice. And look, Peter lists some pretty serious crimes. Murder, theft. But he also says sometimes you suffer for being a meddler. That's like being a busybody, a gossip. You're getting, you're, you're getting into other people's affairs. And you say, well, this suffering of, this principle of just suffering, suffering for being an evildoer, versus unjust suffering, that's suffering for Christ, is obvious. But I'm telling you, it's actually not that obvious. And Christians get it confused all the time. I was recently reading this past week of a father who was jailed. He went to got the, the police put him in jail because of sins he'd committed against his family. I'm not going to describe them. They're fairly heinous. And in a church communication from his church, they talked about him suffering for Jesus. Look, going to prison for a crime is not suffering for Jesus. That's just, that's just suffering. That's just being punished for your crimes. It's not a glory. It's not a blessing. It's just justice. You know, the times I've seen Christians get very aggressive and they're, they're bothering people and then a person calls them names back or harasses them back in the same way and the Christian says, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. It's like, ah, it's a really fine line that you're treading all over. Or people have personal opinions that are not talked about in the scripture and they baptize them and say, this is now a Christian opinion and now when this opinion is maligned, I get to say I'm being persecuted. That's not what we're talking about. Peter says, if you suffer insults for the name of Christ, if you suffer as a Christian, that is an opportunity for blessing and to glorify God. If you suffer because you're foolish or unwise or sinful, that's just justified. And it isn't the kind of suffering Peter commends. And in a strange twist, if you look at verse 17, Peter says, this persecution is a kind of judgment. And judgment here doesn't really have the sense of punishment. I mean, it does a little bit, but it's more, again, more like a purifying, more like a sorting out of who, of who believes. Persecution shows you what you believe. What you suffer for the sake of Christ shows you the genuineness of your faith. It, in fact, purifies that faith. And Peter encourages them. If the persecution of this life is purifying for the people of God, if, if it's even a bit of a punishment or whatever, how much more severe will judgment be for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And look, this isn't an evangelistic effort being made by Peter. It's Christians who read this letter. It's just an encouragement to these Christians to view their suffering correctly. So listen, what does suffering look like at the end of the world? We've said it shouldn't surprise us. And if it's due to our Christian faith, then it's a cause for rejoicing and celebration in our union with Christ. Yet, we haven't talked about motivation yet. So look at verse 19. Peter ties our two points together. He says, let those who suffer, that was point two, remember, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator, point one, while doing good. Godly living at the end of the world, suffering at the end of the world, what does Peter say is the key to both? He says it's the ability to entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Think about it. 
When the world is changing and in difficulty, what does it take to live a godly life in such a circumstance? It takes a trust in God who is in control of all things. When you're being persecuted, how do you go on believing? It takes a trust in God who is in control of the present and the future. See, when Peter says entrust yourself, he means live like God is the only option. Lean on him. Put your hope on him. Put your eggs in that basket. Now still, how can you do that? Well, the answer is because we've seen Jesus Christ do that. Did Jesus suffer according to the Father's will? Yes. Was it just suffering or unjust suffering? It was unjust. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. Yet what did he do while he suffered? He entrusted himself to his Father. And he did what we would call capital G good. Not just little good things, but the ultimate good thing. He brought people to God. He made us right. He took us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so, friends, whatever holds you back today from entrusting yourself to a faithful creator, I'd invite you to leave that behind. Whatever's stopping you from a life of faithful suffering and godly living, you can leave that behind. Because Christ has died, and if you are a Christian, your old life is buried with him, and you're also raised with him into a new kind of life, empowered by his spirit. So as Peter says, to Jesus belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful that you've taught us how to live in all these times when it feels like the world is coming apart or things are tumultuous or changing very quickly. Help us to entrust our souls to you in this time. And I'd pray for anyone who are here and, and kind of on the fence about entrusting themselves to you. Would you speak to them? Would you call out to them that they might hear your voice and know you, that we might together entrust ourselves to you while doing good, while suffering? And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.